Hey guys, this is Robert Breedlove from the What Is Money Show. And as you've learned by watching this show, Bitcoin is the single most important asset you can own in the 21st century. And one of the most important companies in Bitcoin today is Nidig. Nidig's mission is to facilitate financial security for all. They accomplish this by bringing a high level of professionalization and sophistication to the Bitcoin marketplace. As a true game changer in the industry, Nidig is safely unlocking the power of Bitcoin for forward-thinking individuals and institutions alike. By using Nidig, you will gain access to an end-to-end institutional-grade platform, providing Bitcoin OTC transactions, Bitcoin collateralized borrowing, secure custody, asset management, derivatives, financing, market research, and more. And all of these services meet the highest regulatory governance and audit standards. Led by Robbie Gutman, Yin Zhao, and Ross Stevens, Nidig has absolutely exploded onto the Bitcoin scene recently and is leading the way for ongoing institutional adoption in this nascent asset class. So please be sure to check out Nidig as a single source for all your Bitcoin needs. Okay, welcome back to the What Is Money show. Mr. John Verveke, thank you for joining me again. It's a great pleasure to be here again, Robert. I really enjoyed our last conversation. I did as well. Um, you're already influencing my writing quite a bit. Um, I've been publishing this series called Sovereignism. It's exploring, mm-hmm. uh, there's a book called The Sovereign Individual. So it's kind of loosely based on that. Uh, that is the general thesis of the book is that digital technology would be disruptive to the nation state. Mm-hmm. But I've found that going down this rabbit hole of your term, psychotechnologies, right, yes. uh, has really kind of added a missing puzzle piece for me because I've always looked at technology's influence on our mental software and vice versa, but I didn't have this kind of middle piece. Um, even though I've written about it a lot, I never had this term. So it's I have to thank you for that. It's a nice, nice uh, placeholder there um, or bridge. Thank you. Yeah, I coined that term, but I found out that uh, I wasn't the first person to originally use it. There were some researchers in the 90s, but it didn't go anywhere. And I use it slightly differently than they did. Uh, but I do want to give acknowledgement. And, and this idea is deeply, uh, deeply indebted to Bogotsky's notion of cultural tools. Mm, so okay. just to give some credit where credit is due. So. Maybe we defined psychotechnology last time, but I think maybe we can start to parse it a bit. Um, would it would it be useful to uh, the, the cultural tools you just mentioned? Would it be helpful to explain some of that before we get into psychotechnology? No, I, I don't think so. I just okay. wanted to let people okay. know, uh, you know, that uh, I'm indebted to others. Okay, so I'll just to kind of articulate my general understanding of it and then you know you can tweak me here so it's almost like the software that humans are running on in a way so these are these are ways of systemizing our cognition you know the common popular well understood ones are literacy and numeracy you know we think with internal dialogue that's that's um, conveyed in, in literacy, we're calculating in numeracy. And it, I guess a lot of the value proposition of these psychotechnologies is that they are shared, 
right? It's kind of, it gives us a protocol through which to interact yeah. and interoperate with one another. Um, Being so shared maybe, is one of the central features, yeah. Being yes, shareable. Shareable. So maybe we could just talk a bit about how, and here's the other thing, the, the line between technology and psychotechnology, because mm -hmm. a technology itself, and this is not commonly understood, but it's really just a knowledge structure, right? Mm -hmm. We figured out how to make a shovel, for instance, and then okay. we've taken the raw materials of nature and fashioned them in a certain way and indexed them to this knowledge structure. Yep. So yes. clearly there's a line between the tan, you know, tangible tool and the intangible I'm sorry, the tangible technology and the intangible psychotechnology, mm -hmm. but they're also, they're both information-based, I guess, at their core. So how, how do you kind of draw the bright line around these two different areas? Well, uh, uh, first of all, I, I think they blur and the lines are blurry and, and the, the lines are especially blurry for a cognitive scientist like myself, who believes in the 4E model of cognition. The cognition is inherently embodied and embedded and enacted. And so trying to sit like one easy way that uh, you might do, and I do it when I have to sort of parse things quickly for people is, you know, uh, tools fit your body and psychotechnologies fit your mind. But the mm -hmm. problem is that implies some sort of strong separation between mind and body. <clears throat> and I ultimately want to challenge that. Um, so I, when I get to talk, and I, I, I'm grateful for this opportunity, when I get to talk about this more carefully, I think of it much more as a continuum. And when we're talking about, well, how much of it is done sort of in working memory, um, but even, even literacy is offloaded onto physical objects or it wouldn't right. be literacy, yeah. right? Yes. Um, and so if, if we're willing to use these terms much more loosely and to realize that they can't ever be grounds for a dualism of any kind, mm -hmm. I would say a psychotechnology is more sort of cognitive mental in its emphasis and technology and a, a tool a physical technology is exactly that it's much more uh, designed to fit your body in terms of its biomechanics uh, mm -hmm. than it is designed to fit your body in terms of how it is supporting the information processing that's at the core of your cognition so for example a bicycle is designed to fit your biomechanics and speed you up all right literacy is a physical object but it's really designed to enhance your capacity uh, to do information processing. Yes. Okay. That makes sense. Um, and then I guess a further wrinkle to this would then be modern digital technologies. Well, that's exactly the, uh, so for example, what is this that we're using mm -hmm. right now? Is it, is it technology? Well, it seems to be technology in that, you know, it's, uh, it's designed to fit vision and, uh, you know, and, and it's physical objects like computers and TV screens and cameras and mics and all that. Mm -hmm. um, and that's definitely a part of it. But what, what is it we're actually doing? Well, we're, we're recording so other people can share it. Uh, basically, an intellectual discussion. Um, and so in that sense, it, it becomes available to other people. And we're trying to do things uh, with this technology to enhance potentially i hope other mm -hmm. people's cognition so we're trying to create something that is shareable with others and and and, and not specific others right broadly it could be broadly disseminated and it's designed we hope to fit their cognition and enhance it in some 
useful fashion. Um, and so you have problems on the other end of the line. How do you distinguish a psychotechnology from like a theory or a skill? You also have to ask those questions. Right, right, okay. <clears throat> Interesting. Um, so what, um, this is another thing I've been thinking about is um, studying the emergence of the printing press, actually, the Gutenberg printing press. This was a really interesting yes. uh, event because you, what you had was a technology, right? This yes. physical, physically manifested printing press, right. but its real impact on the world was that it accelerated the proliferation of psychotechnologies, right? With literacy, yeah, literacy yeah. and numeracy all of a sudden became much yeah. more attainable. Yeah. Um, yes, And that led to this, you know, global hive mind software update, if you will, uh, where people just became uh, more intelligent on average. Uh, and maybe, maybe intelligence is the wrong word, but more literate. Um, well, yeah, they become more literate. They become more, uh, I mean, <laughs> This is called the Flynn effect that general measures of IQ are going, measures of general IQ are going up mm -hmm. um, across time. And yet it's like, if that can't be right in some fashion, because if you wind the clock the other way, right. then people are idiots, like literally, yeah. I mean, in the, in the psychometric sense, like four generations back, and that's clearly not the case. Yeah. Right? And if we want to go all the way back to Plato, like everybody would be like incompetent and Plato's a genius. And so yeah. like, yeah. so, there is some discussion about that, and some people think it might be of psychotechnologies. And because we haven't really worked out clearly, and 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 and, it, and we're talking about this fact, we haven't really worked out clearly the dividing line between intelligence and then how your problem-solving abilities are boosted by psychotechnologies, mm -hmm. and why that's not really a property of your intelligence per se. Yeah, so that hasn't really been very carefully worked out, and I think part of I mean, I think there's other factors driving the Flynn effect. Yeah. Uh, but one good thing, it one good case, sorry, can, about why the, uh, for the Flynn effect, I think made by Flynn himself, if I remember correctly, was that of course literacy changes the taxonomies that we use. Let okay. me give you an example. So if I, I say to you, what do uh, what do rabbits what what do rabbits and dogs have in common? What are you likely to say? Four legs. Right, four legs, you'll do morphology, you might say they're mammals, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. And now if, if you ask, ask people today, they're liable to say that because they were given, through literacy, they were given a sort of standardized uh, morphological taxonomy in their education. Mm -hmm. And so they are much more likely to answer, right? Uh, that, that's the relationship between them. But if you gave that same question to people say in the 1920s, they're liable to say, well, you use dogs to hunt rabbits. Mm, right, right, right. That's the relationship. And they'd get, they'd get it wrong because the scientists are scientifically literate and they think the right taxonomy is, right, right. The, right, the, right the morphological uh, or the evolutionary taxonomy, the cladistic, right? And so literacy can... It, it, I think things like literacy are at least partially responsible for the Flynn effect in, mm. in, in, in a way for, for uh, in some sense, um, making us better at these tests, because it just means that there's more similarity between the mentality of the test makers and the test takers, because right. literacy averages out the mentality. Interesting. Okay. So there's a, the, the standardization of the protocol in a way 
makes you more efficient, I guess, but also makes you more similar. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And that means, yeah, that means that you're going to do better on average, which is what we've seen. Yeah. Now, I think it's also undeniable. I mean, that's that's specific to the Flynn effect. I think it's undeniable that literacy gives us tremendous enhanced capacities. And then again, you have to you have to ask yourself, how do we you supposed to understand that? And the way I try to understand it is, and this is how it breaks from sort of standard measures of intelligence. I, I try to understand psychotechnology in the way in which it gives me access to distributed cognition, either other people's minds, yeah. or it gives me access to my own mind, right, across time in a way. I, so I can either network temporal versions of myself or synchronic versions with others, or often both. Right. right? Interesting, yeah, so that we could, in an economic analogy, you could say this is actually increasing the scope of trade in a way that you can trade with more slices of yourself across time and right. others across space and both. Right. And this is what reading is when you're reading a classic text, you're exchanging with someone, you know, a hundred, an author from a hundred years ago or whatever it may be. Exactly. Exactly. And it's interesting because the connection might go the other way. Because one of the theories, Matt Rosano, and I think it's a plausible theory about why we, why we, why you see that great leap in average intelligence amongst human beings around the Upper Paleolithic transition, is because of the development of trade networks. Mm. Uh, so there's some events they think it might have been a super volcano. The human species is, hits bottleneck; it almost gets too small. They think we might have been down to ten thousand individuals. Wow. Uh, and then you see, or after that, you see the beginnings of all the things that are very rapidly going to lead to the upper Paleolithic transition, where you're getting the invention of music and representational art and all this other stuff. Mm. And the idea is we seem to have evidence for what, how humans responded to this crisis, whereas before they had basically gone through a biological change, what you see is a social engineering change. Mm. They start to develop wide like widespread, larger trade networks. And obviously they're not just trading goods, they're trading information. Yes. And by creating that much more distributed cognition over distributed over different environmental contexts, that seems to have been the most powerful way in which human beings were able to start to adapt uh, to these challenges. And then what happens is you get the invention of all kinds of ritual behavior to try and deal with this new way in which humans are psych uh, psychosocially organized. Yes. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. We, so that, and maybe these terms we're both using, there's a connection here. This, uh, the Austrians call this the free market. What you're describing as distributed cognition. And yes. it's really when you're trading goods and services with others, you are, to your point, you're trading information. It's the same. It's a signaling. Yes. So again, you are much more well-versed in economics than I am, but I, I mean, I think, you know, Nozick's point that we have to, we have to take, I guess you would call it the symbolic dimension of all exchange into account mm. um, and what he calls symbolic utility, which is basically where we're talking that. So obviously there is, I don't know, maybe this is the right adjective. There's a financial exchange when you and I are doing some sort of commercial interaction. Mm -hmm. There's also all kinds of ritual behavior that's going on mm. and there's social status being uh, uh, conveyed uh, there's all kinds of other information about group membership. 
mm-hmm. uh, uh, right? There's all, and there's also just general information about the culture at large. Uh, well, you've indicated this also in some of the conversations. So I, I would say one of the things would be to, but to bring in perhaps, uh, like to expand on that identification you just met and say, well, in addition to whatever is happening sort of economically in the traditional sense, what's happening in terms of distributed cognition? How is it reorganizing itself? So mm-hmm. let's go back to the printing press. Mm-hmm. The printing press drives the Protestant Reformation, mm-hmm. which is a religious and cultural revolution that affects the world. Right. Right. Now, people are doing all of the exchanges, you know, for their, their local, political, you know, financial reasons, but they're also, right, creating, right, as you said, they're linking minds in a way that allows for, really makes the Protestant Reformation possible. Yeah. And nobody, nobody would, like, I'm sure if you asked anybody as they were doing, are, are you trying to change, right, right, right? <laughs> That's not, I mean, they were trying to change the religion at some point, but I don't think they thought that what they were doing was trying to change sort of cultural organization in a fundamental way. Yeah, yeah. Perhaps is, they were implicitly. Go ahead. This is uh, it's spontaneous. It's emergent. It's a self. Yes. It's self organizing. Like it's self organizing, and this is the thing about both technologies and psychotechnologies. They suffer, as all things do, from the frame problem. They suffer from the mm-hmm. fact. That, and, and, and biological evolution capitalizes on this. It's how you mm-hmm. solve, it's basically how you solve the robustness problem in, in, in biological evolution. You capitalize on that everything always has side effects. Mm-hmm. Um, the price you pay is that everything always has side effects, mm-hmm. right? And so things are going to ramify in ways um, you're not really intending. Right. That, that's one of the things I talk about when I talk about making use of a lot of other people's work, not just my own work by any means, that, um, you know, literacy and coinage are invented for very prosaic lo- political economic reasons, mm-hmm. but they they engender that you can make a good case that they really help drive the actual revolution, which launches you know, a lot of the, you know, world religions and world philosophies. And I don't think that was the intent of anybody when they invented these things. Yes, there's another, uh, this goes back to another guest I had on who um, wrote a book on the history of taxation. And he makes a point that tax systems have been a core element to basically every major historical story, you know, even all the way down to Christ, you know, and before, but what, so like the Rosetta stone, for instance, that was, you know, clearly a very instrumental piece of uh, translating one form of literacy to another. That was a set of tax tables. Um, yes. So, yes. so taxation has been one of the first use cases, if not the first use case for literacy, also Very for much. numeracy, also for coinage. Like this standardization uh, has been yeah. very intimately related to the development of of the state and its its revenue model. And 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 as we were just saying, it's bound up with the way in which you need to standardize and ritualize things if you're going to trade with people. Right, right, because because trade de- depends on some widely shareable sense of fair exchange, uh-huh. uh, and also uh, a fair like uh, a, a mutual understanding, a, a basic kind of trust, uh-huh. um, and so uh, yeah, I think 
yeah, lit, I mean, literacy, cuneiform, and uh, you can make the case very clearly there. It's higher, it's harder for Egyptian hieroglyphics, but you can see cuneiform developing out of, you know, they're basically, they're, they've got, uh, you know, pot, uh, clay pots and mm -hmm. they're stamping them with symbols of what's in the pot. Yes. And then they start, the, and that, and that's how, and that's how, so there's, there is a long stand and it, and it makes sense given what we're talking about. There's a long standing deep connection between psychotechnologies like literacy and coinage and trade and commerce, because they're both ways in which distributed cognition is operating. Yes. And, and remember yes. there, there's another distributed cognition system that's very much in place, which is irrigation. So oh, irrigation okay. requires large scale standardization of effort mm -hmm. uh, and communication, um, et cetera. Um, yeah. Yeah. So there's this uh, protocol element to the psychotechnology, which is just like we're, we're using the Internet right now. We're depending on HTTP, TCP, IP, you know, even yeah. Bitcoin, we consider to be an Internet protocol for exchanging economic value. There is a huge efficiency gain for market actors or no you know network participants more generally to have some standard you know you don't have to think about this is this gets back to the whitehead quote of being able to conduct important actions without thinking about them necessarily so yeah. you can you and this is kind of what an institution is too right you just it's a cognitive expedient if you will i think it's a cognitive prosthetic expedient Right. So what we're doing with uh, with an institution is we're creating basically a prosthetic for our cognitive processes that we proceduralize to the point that it is taken to operate um, automatically. And I'm using that term deliberately because we use that in psychology for when a process can be done without requiring much conscious attention or effort or much of your working memory. So when you're first learning to drive a car, no pun intended, you don't drive it automatically, you drive it very vigilantly. But yes. eventually you get to the point where you can do highway hypnotism. Um, now, what's interesting again is the, the, the like that. So this goes to relevance realization. Gains in efficiency co cost you for loss in resiliency. Because when you standardize, right, right. think about like the problem we face with monocultures and agriculture. Monoculture, we standardize. So taking care of it becomes very efficient. But the price we pay is if there's an unexpected parasite we can lose the entire crop or even sometimes yes. the entire yeah. species yep. like Dutch yeah. elm and stuff like that. So like you, you when you like the, the, the gains in efficiency come at a cost in variation and variation. So variation is variation is always locally useless, but long term <laughs> valuable to you. Yes. Right. Yes. This is a great this is the core. In Bitcoin world, we call this centralization versus decentralization. Mm -hmm. So if you centralize a ledger, right, which is just a list of transactions, it is done with the utmost efficiency. You only have to update one ledger, right? There's only right. one list. Great. Very efficient, can be done very fast. What's the trade-off? The trade-off is you have to trust that list keeper. You have to yes. trust that one database that tell is the 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 totalitarian basically database that tells yeah. everyone what is. So what's yes. the answer to that is decentralization, where everyone maintains their own version of the ledger and compares notes, which is what Bitcoin is. Everyone runs their own version of the monetary history, and every computer audits every other computer's work. So there's mm. no top-down authority. 
the trade-off is it's extremely inefficient, right? You can only do right, seven right. transactions per second versus PayPal's 10 million per second or whatever the number is. Right, right, right. So that's the spectrum. And it's not just clearly in the sphere of money. It's to your point, it's in monoculture versus polyculture. Was that the other term? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so it's space and time. You know, you get, you get um, more efficiency for doing more things in the moment across space but you get less resiliency across time. Yes, yes, exactly. And my my central theory of intelligence, we talked about this last time, relevance realization, is exactly that. That what the brain is trying, the brain is constantly trading between efficiency and resiliency. Mm. And, it's, and it's constantly shifting around. And what you find relevant as, as to what's sort of the optimal grip between efficiency and resiliency at this, at this point in time integrated with sort of your more longer term goals. And so that that's the trick about trying to get AI because it's very easy. Well, sorry, it's comparatively easy to get a machine that can build a, that can be human beings in a specific domain. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't want to, I, I, sorry, I, 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 I want to take that up. I, I, I'm, I'm like, it's, it's, a, it's a significant accomplishment. I don't want to try and deny that. Yeah. But yeah. like, but that's not the same as building a machine that right would would right yeah the machine can beat you and go and perhaps some games but you'll you'll destroy it in tennis right <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Play that, right and so like the, the the trick with agi artificial general intelligence is getting something that can do what we do we seem to be able to be capable of zoning in on limited domains that are stable enough that we can develop an efficient expertise and and then comparing that to being uh, you know having an overall resiliency uh, for dealing with unexpected and novel and complex situations right that's a super interesting you know what else this not to get too far off on a tangent but this also is related to debt and equity actually so if you take on debt this actually amplifies your gains or losses you know if you use leverage to say borrow against your assets and then bet on that same asset. If you're right and the price goes up, you're, you go from one-to-one -one returns to two-to-one -to -one returns based on your degree of leverage. But if you're right. wrong and you know, the price goes down, you can actually get liquidated and have a total loss. So, right. so right. debt amplifies your uh, ability to express in the moment, again, across space, but it gives you this fragility across time. Ah, whereas equity, if you're just equity based, you can't, you don't have as much optionality in the present necessarily, but you have, you're robust across time. So this goes towards something that uh, you and I talked about last time. The fact that, you know, I was suggesting to you that our cognition is actually participating in the very same principles of self-organization as biological evolution and, and things like that. When I think there's an even deeper participation in ontological, because I think reality is ultimately this this fractal, you know, mm -hmm. multi-stable. There's there's obviously invariance, or we, we couldn't find laws, we couldn't make predictions. Yeah. But there's also you know whitehead. There's always this novelty and unexpectedness and openness and uncertainty. Um, and one of the things in, in, that's happening in the bounded rationality literature is getting people to re-remember, if I can put it that way, mm -hmm. the deep difference between risk and uncertainty. Wow. Um, so what is the difference between risk and uncertainty? 
risk, you, you, you can assert, you can assign a probability and therefore uh, an expected utility as well to the event. Uncertainty is you can't do either, you can't do one or both of those. Ah, so this is like known unknowns versus unknown unknowns. Exactly. And, yeah. and the point that the bounded rationality people are making is when we're measuring human rationality, we're often putting people only into situations of risk, never into situations of genuine uncertainty. Mm. And so we can measure them against very algorithmic, like probability theory, decision theory. Mm. The work of Gigerenzer and others says, yeah, but when you transfer to people to, if you, if you try to take those techniques of risk management to mm -hmm. genuine uncertainty, they don't work very well. And it looks like some of the strategies that human beings do transfer well. So human beings may be pursuing, you know, a more, you know, a more general strategy than a more specialized strategy when it comes to rationality. This is an open debate right now. I'm not saying that it's yeah. a consensus, but it's, uh, it's, it's very important. I, I'm trying to, again, make connections how you can see, I hope this isn't too vague, but you can see, you can see these, these, these sort of same principles of self-organization and trade-off and how they are, they go into the guts of our cognition, but they seem to go into the guts of our biology, no pun intended, Yes. but yeah. also into the guts of our ontology, the guts of the physics of yes. the world in a really interesting way. Yes. Yeah. It's very fascinating. And I, I agree with the, the outlook that it is fractal. You know, we see a lot of self-similarity at, you know, in organic layers, biological layers, social layers, yep. intellectual layers. It's, it's yep. very, very fascinating. Um, and maybe this gets to this, what I'm trying to get into today is how technology and psychotechnology influences the shaping of these other layers. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and uh, is, oh, sorry, I cut you off. Well, I was just going to say one of the first places maybe to jump in is to talk about the relationship between technology slash psychotechnology and vocation, um, mm. which I think vocation becomes this natural bridge to getting into the actor and arena dichotomy you describe where there's this, I, I guess, and correct me where I'm wrong here. It's like all identity is intertwined in a way that you can't, one of the examples, you can't be a dancer until you're dancing or something like that. You know, there's. You need every, every identity you assume as an actor an agent needs a supporting identity of the arena and also vice versa. The arena mm -hmm. does not disclose itself as the particular kind of arena it is unless there are agents behaving within it in a particular kind of way. So the, I think maybe the term you, that would be helpful for you here is the idea that those identities are co-determining. Mm. So um, the, the identities that we're <clears throat> assigning and or discovering in the environment um, uh, are, 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 are co-identified, co-determined by the identities, the roles and the identities we're assuming in that environment. Is this really, so it's, it's agent and arena. Sorry. I think I said actor and arena. That's fine. But is I prefer agent and arena because, um, agency is uh, a term that can more readily be extended to biological organisms where, yes. Anyways, uh, it, it's a technical thing that we, we don't really need to get into. But yeah, I, pre I prefer agency. Uh, and, you, and you could assign agency even, I guess, to non-biological things too, right? Well, uh, that's part of the debate. So part of what happens with uh, for e-cognitive science and one of my uh, RAs and 
uh, TAs, and um, now he's now he's got his own PhD. Alex Dejedovic, he's he, he wrote a, an entire thesis on this excellent thesis. How you know you can really extend the idea built building on other people's work like Dennis Walsh and others. You can extend the idea of agency right down to a paramecium. Mm, uh, right. The basic idea. Uh, let's just be clear. The basic idea of agency is everything behaves. Everything mm -hmm. behaves. I've had great conversations with this with Greg Enriquez. Like, you know, this behaves in a certain way and this yes, behaves in yes. a certain way. Right? The, but one of the things that an agent does is an agent can in some fashion determine the consequences of its behavior and alter its behavior so as to bring about different consequences. Mm, got you. Yeah. Right. So there is some seeking. Uh, so for me, not everybody would agree with this. You know, it's a science. So uh, as always, there's theoretical debate. But the, 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 the differentiating, the, 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 yeah, the differentiating uh, criterion of a agent is the capacity to seek in some fashion. And you can mm -hmm. clearly see seeking behavior in a paramecia, where yep. you can't see seeking behavior in a tornado or a hurricane. Right. Okay, understood. The, the Austrians, Austrian economists distinguish this as reflexive behavior versus action they actually just they yeah per, it's all action is it presupposes that it's purposive so anytime yeah. a human acts they're expressing some preference in the world but if you but if you whack the human on the knee with a little doctor hammer and their leg kicks out that's a reflexive behavior you know it's not yes. not a purposive action so it's interesting there's kind of a blurry line there too because you don't know where purpose or i guess teleology maybe enters the picture is that the the oh, dividing line yeah. And that's the that's the that's the um, that's at least one of the significant challenges to having a science of biology. And, and just briefly, so there is no teleology in the ontology of physics or chemistry, mm -hmm. right? There's no seeking right. behavior. Right. It's not it's not appropriate to talk about any physical process insofar as it's just a physical process having a goal. But with living things, and, and Kant brought this up as a problem, they seem to have an inner teleology. Mm -hmm. Paramecians clearly have goals, and they're clearly acting it up. I'm not saying they have consciousness. I'm not yeah. saying they, they are aware of their goals, but they right. clearly have goals. And the idea is, how do we explain that central feature that mm -hmm. distinguishes living things in a way that doesn't invoke properties that will actually be inconsistent? That doesn't have to be reducible. But mm. but it, it can't be inconsistent with our physics or our chemistry. Right. So that's the problem. And then you get a similar problem when you move from agency to, and the line blurs there too, to you know to cognition. I'd be I'm really like, I might give paramecium sort of really really rudimentary cognition, right? Cognition or something. Yeah, yeah, because there's no learning, and yeah. and and so big part of what we mean by cognition um we we often mean by cognition uh you know seeking behavior that can be significantly modified by learning and in that case a plant and a paramecium aren't right cognitive entities although right. they're clearly alive and they're clearly yes. aging yes but, but right and then you get the ad additional difficulty that not only are we capable of learning we also have consciousness which is another layer Yes. So 
The, the difficulty is acknowledging both the fractal identity across all those scales and in a coherent fashion, acknowledging the relevant differences across all those scales. That for me is what Evan Thompson is trying to do with his proposal of the deep continuity hypothesis. Deep continuity is we have to pay attention to both the, right, what's identical yes. across the layers right. and what's different across the layers. Right, right. In a coherent yeah. and integrated fashion. Yes, and this is that, this reminds me again of the chart in your YouTube series where you're talking about the zooming in and the zooming out, right? To identify yes, the yes. generalities, but also the differences. Yes. The, the, and, and they're the both necessary for creating reality, right? Yes, exactly. And so that's one of the arguments I have with others against reductionism. The idea, reductionism is basically the claim that ultimately the all, all, all that's really there are identities all yes. the way down. And somehow everything above, it doesn't have uh, uh, its own reality. But you get into very serious problems uh, because, the ver as I, I think I said this last time, the science that you're doing is up here at this very high level yeah. requiring yeah. cognitive agents and information and gauges and all these things that aren't, right? Yeah. <laughs> right? That aren't operating at the quantum level directly. And so you, you get in a weird place where you're going to say, that, well, the science is, is not real. Yes. But what it's saying is real, which is very, very problematic. Is there, there okay, again, I, I think I brought this book up to you last time, Leela. I know you said you haven't read it yet, but I just want to throw out one argument that's in there, or one point. I don't know if it's really an argument. But he said there's this real issue with we have determinism at the inorganic layer, right? We think A causes B, but somehow the this inorganic layer then emerges into intelligent life somehow yeah where it's not um we're not deterministic and i guess this gets into free will versus determinism debate which is yeah. a whole nother thing yeah um but so, yeah. so a way he, of addressing he, he roots all of that point. sorry just to finish he roots all yeah. of that in a problem with subject object metaphysics and so he proposes an alternative to that I think there's something fundamentally right about that. And that solution goes back to somebody I don't think he talks very much about, uh, uh, like Spinoza. Mm -hmm. um, that's, and, and that's the person who I would evoke because Spinoza wants to say, uh, sort of at the level of our fundamental ontology, only God or nature, which is the sum total of reality, yep. not just a natural world, right? Yep. right? The sum total of reality, ultimate reality in that sense is free. Because for him, something is free if its behavior is solely determined by itself. That's what we mean by free. Because right, if you, a lot of the other definitions of freedom make it incapable of distinguishing freedom from just random behavior. Right. Right. right? And so, and then what, what, and this is towards your point, the degree to which we have to include the self-organization, Spinoza would call it the canatus of something, in order to explain its behavior, is the degree to which we're starting to attribute, at least in Spinoza's sense, a kind of freedom to it. Because we say it, it happened that way, not only because of how A hit B, but when A hit B, all this stuff happened inside B that's all self-organizing, and then that explained B's behavior. And in that sense, right, part of why B does what it does is because of the way B makes itself to be B, right? Uh, yeah. and, that, and, that, and that clearly comes into, although I think there's a degree, Whitehead and others people argue, that's even the case maybe at the physical or quantum level. I think it's undeniable, like when, when you get to the biological level, that that's the case. Again, yes. the paramecium, yes. right? The, yes. the, the, 
the, the paramecium is doing something it's doing because it's seeking and, right. and seeking it. There's no seeking in physics, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, things don't seek in physics, but right, what you could say, well, it's ultimately due to all these chemical interactions. Yes, but those chemical interactions are organized, they're structured to function in a way that seeks out the conditions yes. that will produce, protect, and promote that particular organization of chemicals. That, yes, well said. Um, I would, and I would try to say this, right, we're getting off on a tangent, but so Persig makes the one additional argument that because he's replacing subject object metaphysics with the metaphysics of value or quality as he calls quality, it yeah. he yeah. argues actually that there is seeking behavior at the inorganic level but yes. it's just so minute or tightly yes. bound yes. that we just see kind of the emergent property of it which looks like causality so he's, he's i guess he's kind of making the point that almost out of hubris that we say oh we're different we have purpose and seeking behavior but th these little rocks and atoms don't and, um, and and that uh again uh again that's in spinoza uh that's in spinoza, thinks, okay even the rocks and atoms have canatus uh yeah. canatus is just not as complex and sophisticated is it consciousness course, effectively canatus no no uh i i i i'm sorry i said that very strongly <laughs> as oh, if i'm right. speaking on behalf of everybody what i would say is i think the arg the attribution of it to calling it consciousness is a is a mistake and a bit of an anachronism. Um, I think it's canatus means something like it is self-organized to preserve itself. Ah, okay. So right, even even a rock has a chemical lattice that helps preserve it and keep it. So it, it's self-organized to maintain its rock existence um, right. to a certain degree. Um, and but the person who brings in even at the subatomic level something much more like seeking and who was influenced by uh by spinoza is of course whitehead okay. and so whitehead i'm very i'm reading whitehead a lot right now uh, whitehead is whitehead is definitely trying to overcome the subject object economy he calls it the bifurcation of nature mm. um he's any he, but he's doing it in a way that is much more he I mean, he's one of the inventors of symbolic logic, and he's one of the few people that really understands relativity and quantum mechanics when it's coming online. Um, and he tries to uh, overcome the subject-object division while creating something that is consonant with the science. Now, what's really interesting is he was very much ignored, except by theologians in his time. Mm. But now people in physics and in biology are taking Whitehead's proposals much, much more seriously. Uh, so the idea that per se, I don't know if he's giving any credit to Whitehead or Spinoza, but the idea that even at the lowest levels, there is something like, I, I got to be really cautious here. So you got to put big air quotes. There's something <laughs> like seeking um, even within particles, uh, like subatomic particles. Yeah, that's an idea that people are starting to take seriously. Interesting. Okay, so I have to ask this then. I know we went down a bit of a rabbit hole, but just to come back to technology, psychotechnology, vocation. Um, the t I'm sorry, you gave me a term. I was saying co-identification actor and arena. That's fine. Co-identification is fine too. Okay. I I do the second term co-determination to try and give, it, like, yep. give you an explanatory idea behind it. Yeah. Is this related to the Buddhist notion of I think it's codependent origination. 
So I, it's, it is very fair to say that the Buddhist notion of codependent origination, especially through the Kyoto school of Nishida and Nishitani, had a deep influence on my thinking. Yes. Right. I don't think that everybody who was doing something analogous to that, I think, for example, Geertz in his notion of religion as uh, a meta-meaning system is very much talking about this co-identification process. And I have no evidence that he was ever aware of or influenced by Buddhism or um, Nishitani or Nishida. Mm -hmm. He did some work mm -hmm. in Bali, so he might have come into it, but I don't see it explicitly. So attributing that to him seems unfair. Definitely influenced me. Um, okay. And it goes into how I've thought about it. I wouldn't want to say that everybody who invokes that or, or things analogous to it uh, was influenced by Buddhism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was asking more, uh, understood on the influence chain there. I was wondering more if, I've read this book a long time ago, The Tao of Physics, I don't know, Frijot Capra. Yeah. Well, yeah, he yeah. just talked about all of these modern, uh, you know, quantum mechanics notions being reflected in ancient Taoist mysticism and whatnot. Um, maybe not mysticism, so, but ancient Taoist philosophy. So I was just well, wondering if there was something similar here that's... I, I think the deep continuity hypothesis is similar in that way hmm. uh, that we were talking about earlier. I think that um, it's very much part of the whole Neoplatonic tradition that I'm tr trying to revive. The, 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 I, the, the question to ask, and this goes into the perennialism, contextualism debate within mysticism, and in, in, in work like you're talking about, is, what, well, what's the explanation uh, for that? Um, one explanation, which is, well, somehow Taoism got access to the fundamental structures of reality. Yeah. Um, maybe. Um, or it may be that the fundamental principles of intelligibility, how we make sense of things, actually embody and instantiate some of the fundamental principles of reality like you and I have been talking about. Right, right, right. So it could be more of a participation kind of explanation rather than some special kind of magical insight into the rudiments of reality. I, I tend to favor that explanation over somehow the Taoist sages were prescient of, some, of quantum mechanics or relativity or something like that. that. That strikes me as implausible. But the idea that when we're plumbing the depths of reality, we have to plumb the very depths organizing principles of the mind yes, and how we make sense yes. of things. And therefore there's going to be connections there. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's a, that's for me a more plausible explanation. 